You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. If you wouldn't think that you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, wouldn't refer to yourself in that way or speak of yourself or think of yourself as having any religious affiliation. It's great to have you here as well. Um, I assume, just because I can imagine going into a place of worship as somebody who has no Christian conviction or religious belief, that there are probably some issues of vocabulary and language and style that might be confusing to you. Well, I can understand that. It would be probably similar going into any new scenario, but I'd love to get to know you if that is you. I'd love to chat to you if you had questions or comments, um, if there are things even that, as Christians that we can understand about unbelievers that will help us to communicate the gospel in a clearer and more accessible way, then please help us to do that. We'd love to know how. Today I'm going to be speaking to you again from the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Uh, We're going to be going through 1 Samuel 17 when I'm preaching this term. Uh, And of course it is the chapter that contains the very famous biblical story of David and Goliath. Um, And again, I assume that even if you are not a Christian, that this would somehow ring a bell for you. If you have been a Christian for about 350,000 years, then then probably this is a little bit passe by now. But this is the Word of God that always has something new and fresh to say. And so we are trusting that as we work through this together, that God will indeed speak and maybe even surprise us with things as we work through it. I pointed out last week, in, in, uh, not last week, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I pointed out a couple of weeks ago in, in beginning this little series that the, the text sort of introduces this character called Goliath, a Philistine champion, someone who in every way is an intimidating presence, um, clearly a very powerful and strong man. In fact, perhaps strong enough that he could snap your neck like a twig between his thighs if he so desired to. That kind of strength, big, hefty, strong. I know, weird, isn't it? But hey-ho. And yet, and yet, you owe me. Um, Ask Pete later on. Uh, And yet, the narrator, the storyteller, chooses to focus on Goliath's armor, his apparent invincibility. And not only that, the text highlights that it was Goliath's words, it was what Goliath said that caused Saul and the Israelite army to tremble with fear. And Goliath's words carry an implicit theological attack on the identity of Israel as God's people, a people called to serve and to fear God. You may also recall, if you were here, that there was a deep irony in that Goliath steps down and calls out to the Israelites and says, choose for yourselves a man. And the irony being that there was Saul, the man whom the book of 1 Samuel tells us was chosen by the Israelites for themselves to be king and to fight their battles. And yet here he is, the man that God, the man that Israel chose, cowering in fear along with the rest of the Israelite army. So today we are going to meet David for the first time. But before we start to read the scriptures, 
I'd like us to just bow our heads for a moment and pray because we need God's help. Living God, we thank you for the gift of Scripture. And we confess together with the psalmist that your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We thank you for this God-breathed word. And Lord, whether we think of Scripture as being breathed out by you or breathed into or out from by you, we need all of that. Help us to recognize the breath of God in and through the words of the Scripture today that we might encounter God. Deliver us, please, from having our ears open to just information. May we discern God in these moments together. Amen. Okay, if you've got a Bible then, uh, or a device with the scriptures, then you might want to open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 17 again. And to begin with, I'm just going to read one verse. So 1 Samuel 17 verse 12, we read, Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. And we're going to pause there, because this introduction to David in 1 Samuel 17 presents us with a little bit of a conundrum. There's a little bit of an issue here, because if you have read the rest of 1 Samuel, you will know that this is not the first time that David has been introduced. These verses introduce David, who his dad is, where he comes from, who his older brothers were. But in 1 Samuel 16, all of that and more has already been said. I wonder what could be going on then. We need to go back a little bit into 1 Samuel 16 before we move forwards again with 1 Samuel 17. So, I give you 1 Samuel 16 in a nutshell, a reasonably small nutshell, maybe like a walnut shell, that kind of half a walnut shell maybe. You get the picture. And we are going to read some of 1 Samuel 16 as well. Okay, so 1 Samuel 16 begins with an interaction between God and the prophet Samuel. And at that particular point in 1 Samuel, God has rejected Saul from being king over Israel because Saul was flagrantly disobedient to God. And Samuel's grieved by it. Samuel's upset. Samuel is in maybe a little bit of a mard about Saul being rejected. And God has to tell him to dry your eyes, mate, in a sense. And say, so I've got a mission for you, Samuel. Go to Jesse's house and anoint one of his sons. I've chosen for myself or provided for or seen is the language in Hebrew a king from among his sons. It's slightly risky business because Saul thinks that he is king and so does most of Israel. So Samuel's a little bit nervous, naturally. Nevertheless, off he goes. And on arriving at Jesse's house, Samuel is presented with the sons of Jesse. And the first one to be paraded forth is Eliab. We'll read about it here. When they came, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. 
For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. What's going on here then? Well, it's obviously ridiculous to imagine that God prefers short people to tall people. So if this morning you are vertically challenged, this is not your go-to text. I'm sorry, it just isn't. In Samuel's eyes, though, Eliab is probably the next best thing to Saul because he seems to be big. Do you remember what one Samuel says about Saul? That he was head and shoulders taller than everybody around him. He's a big bloke. And that was part of the irony with Goliath. If there was one bloke who was big enough feasibly to go face to face with Goliath, it was Saul. But he didn't because he was cowering in fear. The present text may help to understand a little bit why he's cowering in fear. Anyway, even the great prophet Samuel seems to be somewhat impressed by human stature, by appearances. So God tells Samuel that he has rejected Eliab. But there's something intriguing about this little story about Samuel before Eliab, because although God says, I have rejected him, we don't actually ever find out what it is about Eliab that causes God to reject him. All we hear is that, well, mortals look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Has Yahweh, the Lord, seen something in Eliab's heart that has caused him to be rejected? Yes. Do we know at this point what that was? No. We just know that God has seen something that Samuel hasn't, or perhaps can't. Abinadab and Shammah, the second and third-born sons, are brought before Samuel, followed by another four who are not named. And Samuel says, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Now picture yourself here for a moment as Samuel. Would you or would you not be slightly perturbed? Would you or would you not begin to doubt your quality as a prophet of the Lord? I thought God told me to go to the house of Jesse and anoint one of his. What? And God's just said, none of them. No, 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 not that one, not that one, not that one. And so Samuel asks Jesse, are all your sons here? And I mean, how many could there be? <laughs> Coming out from everywhere. And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. And when David is finally brought before Samuel, God tells Samuel, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. And then we learn, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. David, in the presence of his brothers, the text actually says that the brothers was anointed in the presence of his brothers, David has just been anointed king of Israel. And God has given him the seal of divine authentication by sending his spirit upon him. Now, among all the interesting and useful things that could be said about this incident, there are some, of course, that possibly deserve more careful attention. Saul, as we know, was a king 
chosen by humans, and yet rejected by God. David, on the other hand, was rejected by humans, by his own family indeed, yet chosen and anointed by God in the very presence of his family. Interesting. For those of us who would call ourselves Christians, those things might trip off some other resonances about somebody else that we think of as king. Now, the story of David and Goliath can be read as a story in its own right, and indeed, it very often is. It's pretty rare that in Sunday school, one, uh, the story of David and Goliath is taught with reference to 1 Samuel 16 and the rise and fall of Saul and everything that comes after it. In fact, it's quite possible that from a composition perspective, from the way that the text was composed, 1 Samuel 17 maybe existed as a standalone story that has now been included into the wider narrative about Saul and his coming to power and then fading and David's anointing and his own rise, however you want to think about it. When we read the story of David and Goliath in the context of 1 Samuel 16 and of the rest of 1 Samuel, and let's be real, that's the context in which it is set in the Christian Bible, then we begin to see all kinds of other things going on. I think, and I propose to you as a good way of understanding the story of David and Goliath, that it's a story that illustrates in the most profound, visceral, imaginative way possible God's rejection of Saul and the divine election of David. It's not really a story about the little guy triumphing over the big guy because it's set in the wider purposes of what God is doing in Israel amongst his people. Now, I've talked about rejection and election a little bit here. And when Christians talk about God choosing or rejecting people, well, it does a few things. It makes some Christians shudder, because, especially Christians in the West, because Christians in the West don't like to think of anybody being excluded. And because Christians in the West project their own psychological ideas about God and community and humans onto God, and then, surprise, surprise, find the Bible reflecting back to them just exactly that God... It's very, very difficult, the idea that God might actually reject someone and that God might choose somebody else. But what? How dare he? Surely God is a fine, upstanding British bloke. Not so. Not so at all. When we speak about rejection and election in Christian circles, it's very often done using abstract theological language, systematic language. We have to resort to philosophical theology, deep stuff, arguments about words and ideas, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that per se. We all, as Christians, when we read the Bible, read in between the lines of the Bible too. We all have to try and speculate about the things that Scripture does not say on the basis of what it does say. But when Scripture, and particularly the Old Testament actually, when Scripture talks about God choosing or rejecting, it almost always is inextricably bound up with the intricacies of relationships 
Between God and humans, yes, of course, but also between humans and humans. It's never abstract. Scripture's language about election and rejection is always very much rooted in the realities of human life with and before God. So, Saul and David, for example, there's one. But it's also very often between brothers. Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. Genesis 27, 28, 29, Jacob and Esau. Genesis something through to the end, Joseph and his brothers. David and Eliab and Abinadab and Shammah. Or if you want to talk about the New Testament, which we will allow, the brothers in the parable of the prodigal son. All of those speak about chosenness and rejection. But the issues in each story are subtly different from one another. They don't all just go "Eh," and say one thing. So, for example, how should someone respond appropriately when they are not favoured or chosen by God? That could be a question that we could look to the Cain and Abel story to try and answer. What kind of life might someone expect to receive from God if they end up being the chosen, the blessed of God? That could be something we could ask of the Jacob and Esau story. How might someone assess the wrongs done against them as part of God's bigger purposes in choosing them? be the Joseph story. You see, all the stories about choosing, the significant stories about election and rejection in Scripture have to do with relationship either between God and his people or between people and people in the light of those things. Scripture, it seems, is reluctant to allow the most significant theological issues to be severed from the concrete realities of human life and relationships. And, speaking of scripture, let's come back now to 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'm going to read verse 12 again and then the following verses. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three eldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, oh, hello again, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab and the third Shammah. Oh, it's them again, yeah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Where was David when Samuel the prophet came knocking? Yes, he was with the sheep. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. By the way, just as an aside, when Scripture, when the Old Testament speaks about an undefined longer period of time, 40 is the number that it uses. When Scripture talks about an undefined shortish amount of time, three is the number that it chooses. Three days, three years, 40 days, 40 years. A shortish amount of time, a longer amount of time. It doesn't need to be taken woodenly, literally. That literally, for 40 days, out came Goliath. Snapping necks like twigs. Nothing of the sort. Anyway, that was an aside. 
As David is introduced to us for a second time here in 1 Samuel, we are also reintroduced to Saul, along with David's three elder brothers, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah. But now, now because we have looked at 1 Samuel 16 in a nutshell, now we can no longer read these words with innocence or naivety. Because we now know that these characters have to be viewed through the lens of God's rejection and election. We have four people here who were rejected by God and one who has been chosen and elected by God. And the way they are portrayed lumps them all together. Notice how twice the storyteller says that Eliab and Abinadab and Shammah followed Saul. That doesn't mean that they just kind of trotted around behind him like minions behind Gru. It means that they were effectively disciples of Saul. They were part of Saul's thing. They were Saul's acolytes. They belonged in Saul's kingdom. Saul was their world, if you want. So no wonder, then, that the storyteller lumps them all together. They belong to the thing that has been rejected by God and is now on the wane. David, on the other hand goes back and forth between Saul, presumably at the battle line in this instance, and his father's sheep at Bethlehem. This is the Lord's anointed, his elect, the king he has provided for himself. The story of divine election and rejection runs right down the middle, right the fault line throughout, through the middle of David's very family. And here he is described as going back and forth to the sheep. Why? Well, he was with the sheep when God called him, and he hasn't lost sight of the responsibility that he still owns to look after the sheep after God anointed him. He's faithful, even when enormous, life-shattering, life-changing things are happening all around him. The Jewish scholar John Levinson says this, In the calculus of the supernatural God, governance is better entrusted to a humble shepherd boy than to those to whom nature seems to have awarded a prior claim upon it. I wonder if that's how you see things this morning. Are you inclined to spot that in fact God chooses, God elects, God raises up, God puts people into positions of power and authority, God chooses whom he wants to lead Christian ministries, churches, maybe even small groups. That's right. Or do we see things purely from a human perspective? That would be a big challenge for us as the people of God. And this would describe David well, wouldn't it? It would describe what is the case with David. In the calculus of God, it's better to entrust governance to a humble shepherd boy. But why? Why David? Why this one? Why would God do that. Well, 
Perhaps it has something to do with the fact that in Genesis 49 and in Psalm 23, which Gillian quoted from earlier, and Psalm 28 and Psalm 80 and Ezekiel 34 and other places that I'm sure I haven't mentioned, we find God identifying himself as the shepherd of his people, Israel. Therefore, it was wholly appropriate that the man after God's heart should be a shepherd because God himself had been pleased to reveal himself as a shepherd. It's not just that, well, David was a shepherd first and then the writers of Scripture thought, oh, well, I've got an idea. Let's talk about God as a shepherd because it ties in with David. No, it's the other way around. God reveals himself as the shepherd king, shepherding and nourishing and pasturing his people. And so it's 100% appropriate that when God looks for the man after his heart, he finds the shepherd, the one who is with the sheep to begin with, and the one who even now, following his anointing as king of Israel, is still going back and forwards to care for the sheep, to look after something menial, something unseen, something out of the public eye. As Christian readers of this story, we may well find that the Spirit's anointed shepherd king who was rejected by his own people but chosen by God bears witness to the person of Jesus Christ. If it was wholly appropriate that David should be God's king because his shepherding instincts were after God's heart. It's even more appropriate that when God himself became king in the person of Jesus, he should reveal himself as being both David's son and David's Lord. In some mysterious sense, we could even say that Jesus and David mutually illuminate one another in the Bible's revelation of the character of God. Why David? Because the heart of God is the heart of a humble shepherd king. So what about us? I make zero apology whatsoever about preaching a sermon that turns this scripture into a story about you. Because it's not about you. It's not. Rather than interpreting this story, this story interprets us. And that happens with the whole of Scripture. Here we are with our three-pound fallen brain, thinking that we can interpret Scripture, understand God, speak clearly and confidently about God, and we find as we read the Bible that God's reading us. Eek. Ah, wasn't expecting that. That's a turn up for the books. This text reads you, even while you try and read and grapple with it. The story may not be about us, but it certainly probes us. Asks probing questions of whether you see the world from a human perspective only, or whether you can see things from God's perspective. And on one level, it's impossible to see things from God's perspective. Who can claim to see things from God's Oh, we all try, <laughs> don't we? Especially when we feel a bit nervous about what somebody says, oh, I don't know that God would want you to do that. Well, because you've got a hotline. None of us see things completely clearly from God's perspective, but 
Doesn't the story of Saul's rejection and David's election reveal something about God's perspective? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. Doesn't mean that you now have the same vision and clarity of understanding that exists within God, in God's self, but it certainly gives you insight. One insight might be this, that in the rejection of Saul, God says through Samuel the prophet, to obey is better than to sacrifice. That's something that goes deep into our hearts as the people of God, isn't it? (whistles) To obey is better than to sacrifice. To say yes is better than to try and cover up your tracks after you've said no. God can't be mocked, can't be robbed, can't be conned. And if we run after human appearances, if we try and put on human appearances, if we only see with human appearances, well, we can act as if we can con God somehow. But sooner or later, the mask slips, the costume wears thin, the reality comes out. Can we see from God's perspective, not completely, But perhaps this story might question us in awkward ways about what that perspective is and how we could embrace it. What about this? The story serves as a stark warning to literally not be impressed with human strength or wisdom, either your own or anybody else's, either individually or corporately. The fact that even Samuel, the great prophet, was impressed by Eliab and had to be told by God, no, not that one. It should speak to us about how easy it is to be deceived by factors that God doesn't give a monkey's about, (laughs) to use the vernacular. There's things that we see and perceive and look for and want and expect and judge things by that do not matter to God At all. At all. God cares about them, not one bit. And yet we exalt them and make them this big thing. Perhaps it could be, whoa, this church isn't very big. God's clearly not with these people. Well, that preacher goes on for a little while, doesn't he? Well, yeah. You get what you pay for and it's free, isn't it? So there you go. Perhaps it's the other way around. Oh, that church is massive. Oh my goodness, that preacher's got about 20,000 million followers on TikTok. Why is a preacher on TikTok? What are you thinking? Oh, did you see his Insta? Oh yeah, he just gets the best flat whites out of his 20,000 pound coffee machine. Why do you care? That guy's on TV, you know. Wow, that's amazing. So what? Do you think God cares? Do you think those things are the thing that God goes, wow, man, I don't, do you know what? I, you're good. You, you're really good. Do you think that happens? No, of course not. Eugene Peterson, who sadly died, you know, I hoped that I would get to meet Eugene Peterson in this life. I will have to wait for the life to come. Eugene Peterson, who led a church for 30 years in reasonable obscurity, you could say, and wrote books about the pastoral ministry and the Christian life, Eugene Peterson said the church that you want can become the enemy of the church that you've got. He was speaking to pastors, but it's true of all of us. The church that you want 
the leaders that you want, the worship style that you want, the kind of preaching that you want can become the enemy of the church that you've actually got. Because when you really want that, it becomes a stumbling block because everything else around you is not that. And then you start to judge it on the basis of an outward appearance somehow. On things that God just doesn't really care about. You must understand. Outward appearance means nothing to God. Maybe you're not convinced. Let's think about the New Testament for a moment. With God, circumcision or uncircumcision, now there's a pretty clear outward appearance that's thankfully hidden over most of the time. Doesn't count for anything. Even the appearance, external stuff that goes right to the very heart of Jewish identity in the first century does not count one tiny little bit before God. Don't be conned. Don't put on appearances. Don't be fooled by appearances. Don't expect or assume that because appearances seem to be all right, that what is actually of value is all there as well. God does not look on the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And now to finish, this story also invites us to reflect on the grace of God once again. The grace of God that says that you, if you are a believer, are chosen and beloved in Christ. If you have believed in and trusted in Jesus today, then you are chosen in him. Jesus is the chosen one par excellence. He is the one, the man who is uniquely after God's heart because he, in a sense, simply is God's heart. And so to believe in him, to receive him, to rest in him, is to receive his chosenness. You get accepted in the beloved All that God the Father says about his beloved Son, he says with love about you when you trust and rest in him. He came to his own, and his own, just like David, did not receive him. But to all who did, to all who believed on his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. Children not born of blood or by the will of a father, but born of God. So trust him. Let the appearances and the longing for appearances, the hankering after outward appearance, the false hope in outward appearance, the judgments based on outward appearance, the inner religious, I'm doing all right because I'm presenting myself well, trust in outward. Let all of that fall away. Throw yourselves, friends, again on the mercies of God. Acceptance, election, chosenness comes by casting yourself into the loving arms of the Savior and receiving him, forgiveness, 
acceptance, eternal security only in and through him. Let's close our eyes for a moment and pray to end. Jesus, we love the scriptures. We, we love that, that they go above and beyond what we think. We, we come to them with ideas and questions and find that they just do like a million times more than all that we could imagine. Uh, and God, we never want to lose that. We never want to get to the point where we just feel sort of complacently meh about the Bible. We, we want to hear it. We want, to, we want to be grabbed and read and interpreted by your word. We want to be drawn into communion with you through the scriptures. And we throw ourselves onto Jesus because we know that outside of him, our, our understanding is just dead. We can't perceive really from God's perspective without you. Please help us then. Lord, as people who you have brought from death to life, as people who we've said this morning and confessed have received the resurrection power of God, may we receive again fresh power, fresh insight. May we live boldly before you and with you. May we rejoice in your chosen one. May we find in David echoes and illuminations on this beautiful chosen one whom we worship. We don't worship David, but we worship you, great David's greatest son. You are God's chosen king, precious, beloved. We want to find ourselves precious and beloved in him. Help us to honor him. Help us to give ourselves to him. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.